0: Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. There are more than 140 works of art currently on view in the West Building that include cats. I can show you many more of those uh, in an hour with slides than I was able to cover in the gallery talks. There are hundreds more works of art in the collection that include cats um, and that are not on view, and I will show you some of the more well-known of those as well. Some works I will introduce by subject. Others, like this portrait, I will analyze more fully. This is arguably the most complex cat in the collection in terms of its meaning, um, as I'll come to later. We will look at works that span seven centuries. The earliest cat on view is the lion Aquamanile on the left, made around 1200. This is a type of small bronze water vessel that originated in Persia uh, and became popular in Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries. This one was most likely produced in Germany, or Belgium, and used in a church or a private home for washing hands. The flap of mane on the top of the lion's head lifts. That's how you put the water in. The tongue is the spout. There is no handle, which aqua typically have. uh, And there's one on view in the collection uh, with where this one is with a handle, so you can compare. Um, But the ribs would help with the grip. And originally, this lion would have been fully gilded. The most recent cats on view in the West Building are the Pumas by William Zorak from 1948 on the right. Zorak modeled these Pumas in the Staten Island Zoo. The ones in the New York Zoo were too listless for him. Uh, these also have massive tails. Cats can have tails up to three times the length of their body, but I'm not sure any of the other tails that you will see today are, uh, can compete with these. I will show you cats in a wide range of media, including sculpture, paintings, drawings, prints, photographs, furniture, decorative arts, commemorative medals, plaquettes, and tapestries. I will also show you examples of all of the different cat species that are currently on view. Of the 141 works on view that include cats, two-thirds of those depict lions. I included pelts in my count and heads of lions, but not lion feet, because then I would have had to deal with all of the furniture. Uh, For those of you who enjoy exploring the collection online, there are a number of ways you can find cats in the collection that are not on view, but I don't recommend entering the word cat into the title keyword field on the gallery website's work, uh, search page. You will get 712 hits, including several of the 353 paintings by George Catlin, in which he included himself, but not this one, which is the only Catlin painting in the collection that includes cats. What you'll get is 141 works with cathedral in the title, 126 works of women named Catherine, and several scenes with cattle. It is much more useful to search on lion, which will give you 253 objects, tiger will give you 49, griffin 26, and then on down through panthers, leopards, jaguars, kittens, and pumas. There are 185 works in the collection with Hercules in the title, 130 with Saint Jerome, 71 of Bacchus, and 19 of Saint Mark. Not all of those will include cats, but most of them do. This is the room in the collection that has the highest density of cats. And almost all of them are lions, but you have to look very hard to find them all because most of the metals and plaque cats in this gallery are small. And you will see far more detail uh, with them blown up on the screen here. And you can also search on Gallery 16, and it will give you a list of all of the objects in that room. And you can go through and then zoom in there as well on your computer. So I wanted to start with this one, which is on view. This is by Pisanello. It's Cupid teaching a lion to sing from 1444. This is a great lion. This is a singing lion. Uh, Pisanello was the one who invented the commemorative metal form of small-scale relief portraiture inspired by ancient coins. And he made medals for many of the prominent courts of Italy. This one was a commission for Leonello d'Este, the man portrayed on the front of the medal, and it was commissioned on the occasion of his second marriage in 1444. It is an allegory of man softened by love. The tame lion, a pun on Leonello's name, is being taught music, the language of love, by Cupid. The inscription is essentially the signature, the work of Pisano the painter. He was a painter and a sculptor. These next two are of a related subject. Cupid has again tamed the lion and is riding it as an allegory of virtue. Both are inscribed only virtue can make men happy. This is one that is not on view, but it is such a great cat. And this is also the reverse for a portrait medal of Leonello D'Este. This is a blindfolded lynx sitting on a cushion. The lynx is a symbol of keen eyesight. And blindfolded, he is a symbol of prudence, of the careful judgment and the caution that are qualities of a virtuous leader. Notice the details of the ends of the blindfold and the two tassels of the cushion that extend beyond the border of the metal as if the lynx is breaking free from the surface. Here are lots of lions attacking people and being attacked. On the upper left is an allegory of faith, with lions devouring a nude youth. And I think only faith is going to sustain anyone during a lion attack. On the upper right is a horseman being attacked by three lions. He is not likely to survive that. Below, the lions are outnumbered. Actually, on the left bottom, it's a panther. And in the other two, those are lion hunts with one lion and many, many hunters. There are seven plaquettes of Hercules. In Greek mythology, defeating the Nemean lion is the first of Hercules' 12 labors. He strangled it with his bare hands. He used the lion's own claws to skin the pelt because his knife wasn't sharp enough. And then he wore the pelt as armor afterwards. So in the four plaquettes on the left, Hercules is wrestling the lion. And the one on the upper left is actually not in Gallery 16. It's right next door in Gallery 15. It is probably the smallest lion on view. And it might be the smallest lion in the collection. This uh, Plaquette is only about an inch wide. And the scenes on the right are all of events that happened after Hercules defeated the lion. He is now wearing the lion pelt. These are seven plaquettes depicting St. Jerome, who tamed a lion by treating its wounded paw. He pulled a thorn out of the lion's paw, and the lion becomes one of St. Jerome's key attributes. There are two Maiolica dishes, also in Gallery 16, along with the medals and the plaquettes. The German door pull in the middle is from about 1500, and it's nearby in Gallery 10. The figures on the plate on the left uh, dates to the 16th century, and it includes Hercules sitting on a lion pelt in the middle of the plate with Omphale, the Lydian queen who enslaves him and then makes him her lover. And Cupid is hovering above them. On the right, is an early 16th century dish with a griffin in the center. Griffins are mythical creatures that are half lion and half eagle. The second highest concentration of lions in the West Building, and these are all lions in this room, are in gallery 19 on the ground floor. This gallery includes at least 26 lions, but it's possible there are some that I've missed. I feel like every time I walk into this room, I find another lion. And this is kind of a Where's Waldo uh, exercise. There are three lions on that 15th century Venetian chimney piece, one in the heraldic medallion in the center of the mantle, and then two lion heads at the base. There are two lions on the 17th century andirons in the fireplace. There are eight lions supporting a pair of 16th century Florentine chests. And I'm showing you one of those on the lower right. And the view on the upper right is of the gallery and of the tapestries and the cushions, which we're coming to next. There is a lion curled up below Saint Mark in the lower left corner of the tapestry on the left. Uh, The detail is above on the left. St. Mark was one of the four evangelists whose primary attribute is a winged lion, the lion of the apocalypse, the four beasts who will, uh, during the revelation, surround the throne of God. And the book of Mark in the Bible opens with a voice crying in the wilderness, like the roar of a lion. Mark is another Christian subject, along with St. Jerome, to prominently feature a lion. There are 11 lions, included in the heraldry on the four 17th century tapestry cushions. And there is a lion in the upper left corner of the 15th century tapestry on the right that was part of a series depicting scenes from the life of St. Peter. This lion, enlarged in the detail above, is possibly a representation of fortitude. Lions symbolize courage and strength, and the allegorical figure of fortitude fights a lion as a feat of courage and strength. Hercules, interestingly, occasionally appears in Christian subjects as a symbol of fortitude. The painted terracotta sculpture on the left is Vincenzo Onofri's Man in Armor from about 1500. And in the middle is a 16th century Italian bronze of Don Pedro Alvarez de Toledo from about 1560. Um, And on the right is one of Clarence Kennedy's photographs of a detail of the silver altar in the baptistry of the cathedral in Florence by Verrocchio, completed around 1478 and photographed by Kennedy in 1932. And the main figure is wearing armor on his knees in the form of lion's heads. The screaming grotesque on the breastplate of the man in armor on left was intended to ward off evil. The lion shoulder guards, known as pauldrons, convey the strength and courage of two lions to their wearer. Lion pauldrons originated in the 14th century and became common during the Renaissance as the preference grew for pseudo-antique armor. And I'm grateful to Alison Lux for providing me with the reference for the origin of lion pauldrons. Barighetti picked up on the fashion for pauldrons. Three soldiers in the Barighetti exhibition wear them. And then continuing chronologically with sculpture, this is Pierre Pouget's Milo of Croton, cast in bronze in the late 17th to early 18th century. Puget was King Louis XIV's favorite sculptor, and he carved the marble original of this bronze in 1670 to 1682 for King Louis, who said of Puget, there is no one in Europe who can equal him. And he said this just after Bernini died. Puget was born near Marseille. He Spent four years in Italy working as a painter and a woodcarver. Sound familiar? And only later in life turned to sculpting in stone and marble, very similar to Barighetti. He was 63 when he finished the first marble version of this sculpture that is nine feet tall and now in the Louvre. Milo of Croton was an athlete and a warrior who lived in the late 6th century BC. He came upon a tree that was partially split by woodcutters. And he tried to pull it apart with his bare hands to demonstrate his great strength. But there was a wedge that had been inserted into the tree by the woodcutters. The wedge fell out, and the tree snapped shut, trapping his hand. So he couldn't get away when a lion came along uh, who devoured him. The bronze reduction uh, was cast using the lost wax method and possibly cast during Puget's lifetime. It was cast in pieces, but the lion's right paw that we see in this view was cast together with the figure of Milo. And you can see how the lion's claws are sinking deep into the flesh of that thigh. The texture of the lion's fur, of Milo's hair, and of the bark of the tree are all exquisitely differentiated. The Barry Gallery is the third highest concentration of cats in the collection. With the recent addition of the Corcoran Collection, the National Gallery now has 121 sculptures by Barry. There are 23 with cats on view. 19 of them are in this room. Barry was born in Paris in 1795. He trained at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts and settled early in his career on the subject of predatory violence. He exhibited the plaster model for a full-scale version of this work, Lion Crushing a Serpent, at the Salon in 1833, where a critic noted, quote, how the line extending from the animal's head to its tail gracefully and effortlessly curves. The lion's expression is at the same time one of terror and rage, end quote. This is one of 116 bronzes acquired in two groups directly from the artist and selected for Corcoran in part by Barry himself. So we really have a fantastic collection now. Lions have been long associated with royalty, with nobility, and they are the kings of the beasts. Kings of the jungle is really a misnomer because lions don't live in jungles. They live in savannas. But, and the serpent is a traditional symbol of evil, deriving from the biblical serpent who tempts Eve. And this work can be read, it has been read, as a triumph of good over evil. Berry may have intended a subtle and more specific political reference here, though, as well. King Louis Philippe, who reigned during the July monarchy, and came to power during the Revolution of 1830 under the astrological constellations of Leo and Hydra. Um, He asked that Barry's plaster model uh, be, he asked to purchase it and then commissioned the version in bronze for the Tuileries that's now in the Louvre. But you don't have to go to Paris to see a full-scale version of this lion. There's one in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. The seated lion is another particularly regal lion, and it relates to countless seated lions that guard the entrances to temples and to cultural institutions. There are paired guardian lions from an Assyrian temple that date to the 9th century BC. And then I have a few closer examples, both geographically and chronologically. On the left is one of the lions at the entrance to the Corcoran Gallery of Art on 17th Street. These are bronze replicas based on marble originals carved by Antonio Canova in 1792 for the tomb of Pope Clement XIII in St. Peter's in Rome. On the upper right is one of the New York Public Library's Marble Lions from 1911, and below one of the Art Institute of Chicago's Bronze Lions from 1895. There are cats walking, seated, reclining, and sleeping in the Barry Gallery. And then there are also many more depictions of predatory behavior. On the upper left is a tiger devouring a gavial, which is a kind of crocodile. Below is a rearing bull being attacked by a tiger. In the center is a horse attacked by a lion. And then we have an elk surprised by a lynx on the upper right. And because the cats don't always win, below on the right is an elephant crushing a tiger. Barry was a master of anatomy. He studied the lions in the zoo in Paris. He dissected animals. The Paris Zoo was well-stocked with wild cats, but he would have had to imagine the attack part because staged animal fights were outlawed in 1833. But he may have attended them uh, with his friend Delacroix uh, while they were still legal. The two sculptures of the tigers on the left of this slide would seem to support, and they have been interpreted as supporting, The 19th century theory that tigers are the most vicious of animals because they kill for cruel pleasure. These tigers are attacking their prey in the midsection rather than the most efficient method of going for the neck. But notice how that lion taking down the horse in the center is also attacking the midsection of the animal. And then nearby in Gallery 8, there is this larger uh, sculpture by Barry of a tiger killing an antelope, And this tiger goes straight for the jugular. So I don't think it's possible to determine which of Barry's cats are the most vicious. Back in Gallery 21, there's a relief of this genette carrying off a bird. A genette is a small spotted African cat related to the leopard, introduced into Europe in France and on the Iberian Peninsula. And some people today keep them as pets. This is one of the four cases in the Barry room, and these animals have nothing to fear. They are installed, sequestered, apart from all of the predators in this gallery. This is Frederick Auguste Bartholdi's allegory of Africa, modeled in 1863 to 65. And we're not sure when it was cast, but sometime after 1864. Bartoldi was from Alsace. He trained with a number of sculptors and architects in Paris. Most, he's most famous for the Statue of Liberty. This was an early work for a monumental stone fountain for Bartholdi's hometown of Colma. And the uh, fountain is there pictured on the left. He was just 22 when he won this commission. And the Allegory of Africa was one of four allegorical figures, including Europe, Asia, and America that were located at the base of the fountain. And the original fountain was destroyed by the Germans in 1940. Bartholdi was an abolitionist, and he modeled this work during the American Civil War. This depiction of Africa was later described in the 1920s as, quote, a Herculean figure with a pensive, sorrowful expression on his face. And this comment is significant because, as we've already seen, the primary attribute of Hercules is the pelt of the Nemean lion that he defeats as one of his 12 labors. And this Herculean figure of Africa rests on the pelt of a lion included here as an attribute of Africa. The pelt is unusual. If you you go look at this work in person, it seems to be entirely made of mane. It's fascinating. Here are some more pelts in the uh, collection, painted as well as sculpted versions. Corot's repose on the upper right was recently part of the Corot Women exhibition. And this female figure was not identified when Corot exhibited her at the Salon in 1861. This painting anticipated Manet's Olympia, which we'll also be looking at, by four years in its depiction of a female nude who is clearly a model posing and who is looking directly out at the viewer, but without the come-hither look that was typical of nudes exhibited at the Paris Salon. There is a suggested link to the Roman god Bacchus in this painting through the leopard pelt that she is sitting on, um, and also through the group of those reveling figures in the background. And so Corot is the segue to our discussion of the god of wine and his association with leopards. On the left is a sculpture by the American Edward McCartan, titled Dionysus from 1923. This is on loan from a private collection. It's near the seventh Street entrance. Dionysus is the Greek god of wine, fertility, and ritual madness. He's typically depicted with leopards, and his female attendants, as we've just seen, sometimes recline on leopard skins. This cat is possibly a leopard, but it's usually described as a panther in the literature on this sculpture. And as we'll see, uh, the cats that are used to signify Dionysus and Bacchus are often uh, interchangeable. Dionysus holds a thyrsus, a wand tipped with a pine cone, which is another one of his attributes. And the cat serves in this sculpture as a kind of low, rounded niche for the figure. And it is lit so that the tale casts wonderful shadows on the wall. I encourage you to go look at it in person, because I couldn't really capture the shadows. And on the right is Giovanni Tiepolo's Bacchus and Ariadne from 1743 that is upstairs in Lobby B. Tiepolo was born in Venice. He spent his entire career there, but he also fulfilled commissions for many of the courts of Europe. This is possibly one of three mythological scenes that were commissioned for a private palace in Venice. Bacchus. The Roman incarnation of Dionysus is sitting somewhat precariously on top of an enormous barrel of wine with a cup in one hand and a crown of stars in the other that he's holding out above Ariadne, below. Bacchus rescues Ariadne after she's abandoned by Theseus, and he marries her and crowns her with gems that become a constellation when she died. Front and center, and looking directly out at us, depending on how tall you are, this cat is at eye level, um, identifiable by its distinctive spots and flat ears. That is not a leopard. It's a jaguar. This cat is menacing. um, And it dares us to try to climb into the scene. And yet, he can't be all that vicious because he is allowing that puto to ride on his back and string grapes around his neck. Mm -hmm. As someone on one of my gallery talks in front of this painting suggested, that jaguar isn't menacing so much as he is seriously annoyed. (laughs) Another curious detail in this painting um, is that it's framed by a pair of grisaille griffins made to look like marble. Griffins, again, to review, they have the body of a lion and the head and wings of an eagle. These griffins have women's breasts and the heads of a dog. Griffins are freely interpreted. And this was one in an engraving from 1480 to 90 by Martin Schungauer. It's not on view, but this griffin is more eagle-like in its front half than Tiepolo's griffin. But lions don't have hooves. The tail is really the only leonine thing about this creature. And on the right is a more typical griffin, the reverse of a portrait medal, again by Pisanello, that includes a more traditional griffin. It's a female griffin. But it doesn't have breasts like a, a woman in the Tiepolo. This griffin is feeding two children from her lion body, much like Romulus and Remus were raised by a wolf. We come to the subject of Orpheus. The painting on the right by an unknown Venetian painter from 1515 depicts Orpheus taming the animals with his music while Circe, on the rock behind him, has the power to turn men into beasts. She is gesturing with her wand toward the man at the far right, who is holding up an arm to fend off her curse. There is a large cat, it has been identified as a panther, just to the right of Orpheus's head, and it is unclear under whose spell the cat has fallen. In the late two 15th century plaques, on the right, the lions are being charmed by Orpheus' playing and listening attentively alongside animals that they would normally eat. There are six Italian paintings of Saint Jerome. We're coming to a section on Saint Jerome. I kind of went a little crazy with Saint Jerome. There are a lot of Saint Jerome's in the collection. So there are six Italian paintings of Saint Jerome on view, including these two. Both of which include Roman architecture in the landscape to indicate the worldly life that Saint Jerome has renounced. In the painting on the left, this is by a follower of Montaigne, Saint Jerome in the Wilderness, from about 1475. Jerome is beating his chest with a stone in penance. Notice how small the lion is. Seated, he is the length of Jerome's foot from head to paw. The point here, in early Renaissance painting, is not to make the lion the key feature of the painting. The lion is only there as an attribute of Saint Jerome to help you identify the saint. On the right is Giovanni Bellini's Saint Jerome reading from 1505. It's on view upstairs, with a more realistically scaled lion in the lower right corner. Here are four more paintings by Saint Jerome, all from the late 15th, early 16th century. On the left is Saint Jerome reading from 1476, and his lion peeks out of his cave. The Perugino panel with Saint Jerome from the Crucifixion with the Virgin and Saints from 1482 is next, and it has a smallish lion in the distance, but. Perhaps that's just a matter of perspective. This lion has a very sweet expression. And this lion possibly influenced the third example that is by a follower of Perugino, who painted his Saint Jerome in the Wilderness around 1490. This is a more properly scaled lion, and in my opinion, this is the sweetest, most charming lion on view with his wide eyes looking directly out at us, and this black definition around his eyes, which I can only compare to happy clown makeup, um, it it underscores how gentle he is. It's wonderful. And then on the right is Sima da Canagliano Saint Jerome in the Wilderness from about 1500 with a very unhappy-looking lion. There's one more painting of Saint Jerome that's on view, and that includes a lion. And it's this diptych by Jan Gossert, who was born in France, possibly trained in Bruges, and then worked in Antwerp. The panels are painted in grisaille, again, to imitate sculpture. And they include multiple incidents involving the lion. In the left, the detail that I've pulled out, the lion rescues a donkey from thieves that are on the road in the right panel. And in the detail on the right, the lion is welcomed back into the monastery by St. Jerome and forgiven for forgetting himself and later eating the donkey. <laughs> this is possibly the most anthropomorphic lion in the collection, and he looks very much like Bert Blair, the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. And I wish I had made this observation myself. I can't say that I have. This was suggested to me by Bellademeter, and I'm very grateful to him. I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Next is a comparison of a low relief marble of Saint Jerome in the Desert by Desiderio de Setignano. It's on view downstairs next to the terracotta man with the lion pauldrons. And I'm comparing it to a print by Rembrandt of Saint Jerome with by the Pollard Willow from 1648. Desiderio's lions are in very low relief, and it's easy to miss the second one. I hope you can make it out in in the detail. These are almost ghost lions. Rembrandt's lion appears to be a female lion, and this is the only Saint Jerome in the collection that I know of who is attended only by a female lion. Desiderio includes a female lion in addition to the more prominent male lion. And in the relief, the boy at the right is reacting in terror when he sees the lions. And of course, Jerome knows they're tame um, and a symbol of his peaceful existence in the wilderness, focused as he is on prayer and penance. There are many more St. Jerome's in the collection that are not on view. And I'm showing this, I found fascinating. Albrecht Durer was really into St. Jerome as well. And he depicted him in many different ways. These are all by Durer. On the left is St. Jerome Penitent in the Wilderness, an engraving from about 1496. Next is a woodcut of Jerome in his cell from 1511. In the center, he is in a cave in a woodcut from 1512. Then is a dry point by the Pollard Willow, also from 1512. And finally, the most famous of Durer St. Jerome's in his study from 1514. And there's not entirely a consistent progression of the gentleness of the lions. They become increasingly gentle. That last lion is so tame, it looks almost like a sheep And it's resting next to a little dog that is curled up very happily with him. These next two are both by Peter Bruegel. The elder on the left is a pen and ink drawing from 1553. And on the right, an etching and engraving after Bruegel from 1555 to 7. And even though we are far removed and well above both of these landscapes, the lions in both works seem to be looking out at the viewer. Moving on from St. Jerome, but continuing with biblical cats, this is Bakayaka's gathering of manna from 1540 to 1555. Bakayaka was a student of Perugino. He's known for his depictions of animals. There are 31 animals and birds of 18 different species in this painting and 80 humans. This painting includes a serval, the mid-sized cat, with the pointed ears in the detail on the left uh, that's there with a mongoose. Servals are native to Africa. They like to hunt in tall grass. Um, this is another type of smaller wild cat that some people like to keep as pets. And then on the right in the detail there's another Jeanette. There are also two women in this painting who are wearing leopard capes. Most of the animals depicted have nothing to do with the subject of gathering manna. This comes from the book of Exodus in the Bible. God sends food to feed the Israelites during their 40-year exodus from Egypt, and all of those people and animals, they're gathering the food coming from heaven. This is the related subject from the book of Exodus, when Moses strikes the rock with his rod and water comes streaming out. This is Joachim Utval's Moses Striking the Rock from 1624. There is plenty of water for everyone here, and also for their numerous, if less varied, livestock than in Bakiyaka's version. The dogs all drink from the pool of water just beyond this low wall of women, children, a goat in the foreground. And someone has kindly supplied the cat in the lower right corner with a dish. That cat is not going to go join the other animals in the common pool. Stepping out of chronological order now and returning to Italy, this is the Annunciation by Veronese and his workshop from 1583 to 84, and it includes the earliest domestic cat in the collection. In this scene, the Archangel Gabriel appears, tells Mary that she is going to bear a son. God is there, surrounded by several angels. He sends the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove down to Mary. There is also a cat, and this cat is easy to miss. It is crouching in front of the balustrade in the background. Cats are sometimes included in scenes of the Annunciation as an allusion to the devil who will be driven away by the coming of Christ. But sometimes cats are also present at the Annunciation because of a legend that tells of a cat giving birth in the stable when Christ is born. To me, it looks as though this cat is drinking from a dish, and this is a detail that's not mentioned in the recent systematic catalog entry for this painting, but I think the dish seems to imply that this cat is is well looked after, it's cared for, it's it's going to stick around. So I'm going to go with the more positive interpretation of the symbolic meaning of this cat. There are 10 lions in this one painting, so when this painting is on view, I think this would be the fourth most densely populated gallery of cats. This painting is by Rubens, and it's from 1614 to 16. This is another Christian subject that prominently features lions. This is a very large painting. The lions are almost life-size. And we as viewers are positioned in the den along with Daniel, and two of the lions seem to be looking directly out at us. And these lions are convincing. Rubens studied lions in the zoo in Brussels. He did several drawings from life of his models, including this drawing. I think this is probably the best lion in the collection. This lion looks so uh, wise and concerned. This is Aslan. Uh, I think Rubens would have liked C.S. Lewis. Anyway, this is also in the gallery's collection. And then in the same gallery where the Daniel and the Lions Den usually hangs is Hendrik Holtzius' The Fall of Man from 1616. Holtzius was born in Germany. He spent most of his career in the Dutch city of Haarlem, And this cat takes part in a scene depicting the fall of man, and the moment when Eve takes a bite of the apple offered to her by the snake. And you'll notice the snake has a human face. It's just to the right of Eve's head. And snakes with the face of a woman indicate that appearances can be deceiving. Adam is looking at Eve, and you can tell by the way that he is looking at her that he is not going to resist for very long. There are a lot of animals in the landscape beyond and that help underscore the meaning of this moment and this depiction the way that Holtius has decided to uh, play it up. The elephant is a symbol of chastity and piety, and it serves as a counterpart to Adam's weakness. It has turned its back on the scene and is walking away. There's also a hare that is running away, because it is afraid of what is about to happen um, when God finds out what Adam and Eve are up to. Goats symbolize lust, and more specifically, sinful women who destroy men by engaging them in carnal relations. So in this depiction, the fall of man is all about Adam and Eve's inability to control their physical desires. Cats were already associated with lust by this time. But the cat here is confronting the viewer with a particularly penetrating look. And that cat is there to remind us not to judge Adam and Eve for engaging in activities and behavior that we ourselves probably enjoy. The cat is there to say, judge not, lest ye be judged. And this is a little bit of an aside, but as this is a religious subject that includes a domestic cat um, and the theme of procreation, I'm going to use this work as an opportunity to mention an earlier moment in history and the low point for domestic cats um, in, in terms of the Catholic Church. Uh, In 1233, Pope Gregory IX issued a papal bull that targeted cats as instruments of the devil, and he ordered cats to be executed. As a result of this decree, when the plague hit, there were no natural predators left to deal with all of the rats. But this sort of standard line about how the Catholic Church made the plague worse um, has been countered by Abigail Tucker in her recent book, the Lion in the Living Room, which is very fun. And she traces the history of the domestication of cats. And in her telling of the period around the plague, she writes, quote, no amount of hurling cats from bell towers and burning them in bonfires would have made more than a tiny dent in cat populations across the vast area of mainland Europe. She points out that cats are hard to catch and they're exceptionally good at reproducing. And this is why there is this problem in Australia, where there are 18 million feral cats, and we're back to the government ordering uh, the execution of cats. Anyway, cats are good at reproducing, which brings us back to the subject of the painting. These are two related representations of what happens next. So on the left is Domenichino's The Rebuke of Adam and Eve from 1626. And this work is on view. The one on the right is not. After Adam and Eve eat the apple, God descends surrounded with his cloak and angels here in a quotation taken directly from Michelangelo's Sistine ceiling, and God is gesturing toward Adam to express his disapproval. Adam is passing the blame on to Eve, who is blaming the snake. (laughs) The lion and the lamb are there to suggest that animals lived peacefully together in Eden, but now things have changed, and the lion is soon going to think that that lamb looks like lunch. I'm not sure he's quite there yet. Uh, his eyes are really wide, and he is crouching in fear. He's terrified by these figures that have suddenly come down and are hovering above him. In Benjamin West's expulsion of Adam and Eve from Paradise, on the right, this is a painting that's not on view. It's from 1791. In this moment, there's there's no more explaining to be done. Gabriel has arrived. He's evicting the guilty pair. And at that very moment, the eagle in the sky becomes a bird of prey. It is catching a bird. And the lion is no longer distracted about lunch. And those horses are looking very scared. This painting is on view. This is in the Dutch galleries. This is David Teniers the Younger, Peasants Celebrating Twelfth Night from 1635. David Teniers was from Antwerp, and he's most well known for his scenes of peasant life. This is a characteristic one. The cat and the dog in this scene are really incidental to the celebration that is taking place in the tavern, but they too appear to be content and well fed. The dog holds a bone between its paws, and the cat, that is a solid little cat, um, and it is oblivious to the antics of the boy poking his head through the wall directly above it um, and the man that is, who is peeing into a bucket directly behind him. That is one stoic cat. And now for some more revelry, this time French but derived from similar subjects by David Teniers. This is a view of the Salon, otherwise known as Gallery 12. And it is a room that was designed in the Rococo style for a private palace south of Paris in the early 18th century. The paneling and the paintings were removed from the chateau sometime between 1901 and 1906. They were purchased and reinstalled in the dining room of a mansion on Fifth Avenue in New York, And then uh, they were installed there in 1922 and then donated to the National Gallery in 1957. And the walls were originally painted. The National Gallery uh, stripped the paint, um, so you can really see all of the wood and the detailing and the carving. And then there are paintings above the mirrors, as you see on the left. And there are four over-door panels um, on either side of the room. The artist who painted the paintings is Christophe Hue, who specialized in these kind of overdoor pictures and animal subjects, and in particular, the sub- these kinds of subjects that include monkeys imitating human behavior. The monkeys are usually fashionably dressed, and they usually are conveying a satirical meaning about the upper classes. These paintings are known as songerie, The French word for monkey is and they are intended as commentary on the upper classes. And the idea that to appear refined, all you really need to do is to ape the pastimes of the rich. These paintings became popular in France in the 18th century because French collectors loved to buy earlier Dutch and Flemish paintings with monkeys behaving like humans, particularly painted by David Teniers. And the French examples tend to be more playful and less biting in their social commentary than the Dutch monkey paintings. But by the end of the 18th century, they often contained an element of malice. Malicious as these get is the uh, scene of the dance. And they're the two details that I've pulled out. One of you shows a monkey who is being ill uh, from too much drinking, and another monkey is reaching into the bodice of his partner. These two, the painter and the sculptor, were designed to hang over the mirrors on the one end of the gallery, as they still do today. And these particular images, painters and sculptors, are common among saint They comment on artists who are mere imitators of nature. They don't produce true art. They can only ape nature. And the position over mirrors indicates that these monkey artists are capable only of what a mirror can do. Some of the painted six sangeries in this room include only monkeys. Some include cats and dogs in the role of pets to the humanesque monkeys, which is the case in the painter on the left. You see a cat sitting in this sort of strange, large-footed bowl under the monkey who was posing for his portrait. The concert is the scene that includes the most cats. And it is the one scene that includes other animals, not just monkeys, in the guise of humans. And similar to the monkeys, they are also intended to parody human behavior. In the concert, a monkey is conducting. A dog is playing a zither in the foreground. On the right, there's a fox playing a cello. A bear plays the bassoon. And there's a female cat, the only one who is dressed is playing a lute. There are two other cats in this scene. And so here are some details. And the negative connotations for the singing cat on the left, who I believe has the most widely opened mouth of all of the singing animals in this scene, apart from the donkey at the far right, who is clearly braying. And the donkey is the key to understanding what kind of music these animals are making. It is not a nice sound. Um, Cats are also one of the few animals that have a term associated with the unique loud vocalizations that they do in the middle of the night, caterwauling. Um, And so cats, I think, are are key to the unmelodious music that these animals are making. And again, the donkey is, is the key, I think, to understanding and conveying the message that this painting is poking fun at the upper classes who consider their amateur entertainments to be even remotely musical. I love the white cat playing the fiddle. Back upstairs in the French galleries, this is Watteau's Ceres, Summer, from uh, 1717 to 1718. Ceres is the Roman goddess of the harvest. And she is accompanied by creatures representing the zodiac for the summer months, time of the harvest. So you have the twins for Gemini there on the right, a crayfish for Cancer at the lower left, and the lion for Leo. That's not a happy lion. And then just quickly, there are lions, sculpted lions, in the landscape of Boucher's The Love Letter from 1750 on the left, and Fragonard's The Swing on the right from 1775. I love the the lion fountains spouting water out of their mouths and providing a bath for that little dog, which is great. Then also in the French galleries, there is Fragonard's painting A Visit to the Nursery on the left. It was possibly inspired by a sentimental story from 1765 about a well-bred English girl who marries a Scottish farmer. She doesn't want to go through with the arranged marriage that her parents wanted her to make. And she marries the Scottish farmer, and she lives a happy life in the country. And so that cat positioned directly under the head of the sleeping child in the scene is an indication of the quiet, um, happy domesticity of this family. Similarly, the white cat perched on the railing near the door in the tower of the bridge at the top left of the Pont Salario from 1775 is there. The the woman on the balcony is reaching out to get his attention. That cat is there to add this happy, picturesque quality to the scene. There is a lion in David's portrait of Napoleon in his study from 1812. David painted Napoleon working all night through the night in his study. And the lion on Napoleon's desk is similar to the lions, possibly sphinxes, on the 16th century French walnut table that's on view in Gallery 21. The gallery has three of these sphinx tables. And the other ones are much more clearly sphinxes with the heads of women. Uh, So it's fascinating to see this lion associated with Napoleon. And then back into the wild, Delacroix's Tiger and Snake from 1862 is on view upstairs. Delacroix and Barry were friends, and they sketched together at the zoo and at the Museum of Natural History in Paris. They may also have attended animal fights together before those kinds of fights were outlawed. This painting is reminiscent of Barry's lion crushing a serpent, and both artists are expressing the romantic concept of the sublime through representations of the more terrifying and brutal aspects of the animal world. There's a kind of pattern now to the back and forth between the romantics of the 19th century, who represent nature uh, red in tooth and claw, and the biblical or mythological scenes that show animals that would normally be predators and prey existing peacefully together. And so we come to this, Edward Hicks' Peaceable Kingdom from 1834. Hicks started out as a sign, furniture, and carriage painter, and then became a Quaker minister. This subject is on the theme of peace and brotherly love. He did more than 60 versions of this subject over a period of nearly 30 years. It's a painted sermon. The book of Isaiah foretells when wisdom rules the land, quote, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. So we have a wolf right next to a lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. There are two leopards there with the goats. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox which would be truly miraculous that lions, who are hyper-carnivores that can only eat meat, are going to do a complete outf- about-face and become herbivores. The point is, if these wild animals can control their wild nature, man can also control himself and become peace-loving. And Hicks often includes a view of Penn's treaty with the Indians in the background, based on Benjamin West's history painting, um, to convey the biblical story, to to connect the biblical story to American history. The animals in Hicks's Peaceable Kingdom have also have anthropomorphic expressions. The lion here, I think, particularly so. The other painting by a self-taught naive or folk artist on view in the American galleries that includes a cat is this one by John Bradley. He lived in New York. He was active in the 1830s and 40s and painted portraits. His best portraits are of children. And European portraits of children with gendered attributes in terms of their pets date to the 17th century. Girls are typically portrayed with cats. Boys are typically portrayed with dogs. It doesn't always follow, but it's sort of wonderful in these folk paintings. They relate to an early 19th century rhyme, snips and snails and puppy dog tails. That's what little boys are made of. Sugar and spice and all things nice. Fortunately, there's no cat. That's what little girls are made of. There are three more portraits in the folk collection, all gifts from Edgar and Bernie's garbage uh, that include cats. These are not on view. Uh, the portrait on the left is of the Budd family, and the little girl on the floor is the youngest child, and she is the one holding the cat. In the middle is a portrait by Joseph Chandler, a girl with a kitten an unusual painting in American naive paintings where the cat is moving. It's playing with that red ribbon. And on the right is a memorial portrait to Nicholas Catlin, the little boy in the painting on the right, who died at age one. This is inscribed on his memorial that he's standing next to. He died at age one year, one month, and 15 days. The boat on the river behind him symbolizes the voyage of life, The plucked flower is life cut short. The weeping willow and monument are unusually explicit references to death that are not found in typical memorial portraits. And the cat was perhaps a favorite pet during this child's brief life. I'm saving the best two garbage pictures for last. These two are also not on view. These are great cat paintings. On the left is the cat from the second half of the 19th century, a disembodied head of a cat with a bird in its mouth. This derives from 18th century paintings of hunting dogs with prey in their mouths. The possible duplication of the bird in the tree on the right with the bird in the cat's mouth may suggest two sequential scenes. And I couldn't resist. A bird in the mouth is worth two in the tree. Cat and Kittens from 1872 to 83 on the right is a portrait, really, of a mother cat with her two kittens. The mother cat has gold leaf in her eyes, which I think adds to the intensity of her almost hypnotic stare out at the viewer. The eyes of the kitten on the right seem to express the alarm at the tangled mess of yarn that he has made in his paws. The right paw of that kitten all tangled up in yarn, is very carefully observed. But I have to say, over decades of cat ownership, I have never seen a cat sit with its tail, uh, (laughs) sit on its tail coming directly up between its legs. This painting is also by an anonymous artist. The last two cat paintings were by anonymous artists or we don't know who painted them. And this is sort of a portrait of a farmhouse in central Pennsylvania. Interestingly, includes these very sharp peaks in the background, not typical of Pennsylvania. Uh, But there's a wonderful cat along the bottom. It's almost sitting on the bottom edge of the painting right below the horse. And I've blown it up. This cat has really great whiskers. It's a very sweet cat. It also, in the detail, seems to have a detachable tail. This is Winslow Homer's Sparrow Hall. Uh, two cats on the left, two cats are on and near the stoop with the women and children in Homer's view of a house in the English fishing village of Colorcoats on the North Sea where Homer spent two years. The cat on the steps is playing with the yarn being dangled by the younger child. The other cat sits on a crate to the right of the stairs. And then in Richard Norris Brooks, a pastoral visit on the right, An African-American family hosts their pastor for a meal. The title is a play on words. And even the white cat on the floor near the father's left foot is part of the event, enjoying a saucer of milk. Like the Homer, these were both painted around 1881, um, and the Fragonard, these cats signal domesticity. And like the next painting, Brooke conveys the texture of the cat's fur in a really wonderful way. This is Edward Vuillard's portrait of Theodore de Ray in his study from 1912. And we're heading back to France to put this next cat in a more logical, chronological sequence. We're obviously focusing on cats, uh, but it's important to recognize that there are far more domestic dogs than cats on view in the West Building. The gallery where the Vuillard hangs is representative. This lone cat, whose name is Lulu, we know the cat's name, She is outnumbered three to one by paintings that include dogs, all by Mary Cassatt in Gallery 86. Comparing numbers of works both on view and not, there are four times as many paintings in the collection that depict dogs than paintings that include cats. And because dogs are pack animals and there are many hunt scenes in the collection, one hunt scene can yield as many as 12 dogs in one painting. Cats are loners. Um, And as someone pointed out during one of my talks about this painting, the man in the painting, Theodore Duray, is most likely also restraining Lulu as he pets her so that she won't run away uh, and give Viard time to capture her features. Duret was an art critic. He was an early champion of the Impressionists in the 1870s. And Vuillard's portrait of him was directly inspired by Degas's portrait of another critic, Edmond Doranty, on the left. And you can see how Vuillard's composition is also dramatically angled into the room. Duret was 74 when he commissioned this portrait. And Lulu is painted very loosely. She looks directly out at the viewer. The fur of the cat is like the beard and mustache of DeRay. There is a thick, tactile quality to the brushwork in both. And there is a ridge of fur where DeRay's fingers are petting Lulu. And that ridge conveys how thick and and soft the cat's fur is on the neck. Duray helped convince the French government to buy Manet's Olympia, one of the most important paintings in the 19th century in France that just happens to include a cat. And I've changed the tonality of the Olympia so that you can see the black cat. It often gets lost in the uh, darkness on the right of the painting. This painting of Olympia directly relates to the next painting we're going to talk about, Cecilia Beau's Portrait of Sita and Sarita. Beau painted the original version of this painting, 1893. The one that you see here, and that's on view upstairs, is a later replica from about 1921. Beau painted this to keep it for herself. She gave the original version to the French government because she wanted it to be in the same collection with Manet's Olympia. The painting is a portrait of her cousin, Sarah Levitt. And Sarah looks off to the side. The cat is looking directly out at us. Their green eyes are lined up in a row. The cat's tail casts a shadow behind Sarah's head, linking them further. And Sarah's extended finger echoes the form of the cat's tail. When the original version of this painting was exhibited in New York in 1895, one critic commented, I don't see how even Mr. Sargent would paint a picture with more distinction. And this is interesting because Sargent and Beau are constantly compared in criticism in the 19th century. And Cecilia Beau is usually uh, comes up wanting next to Sargent. This painting is phenomenal. There's really no competition. Um, Beau is explicitly referencing Manet's Olympia, the shocking nude portrayal of Victorine Moron, who was a well-known model, um, who confronts the viewer almost aggressively. Essentially, she's posed in the guise of a prostitute, and this scandalized visitors to the Paris Salon in 1865. The black cat in Manet's painting also looks directly out at the viewer. And following the reception at the Salon, black cats became associated with sexual promiscuity. The position of the hands flattened across the woman's lap in both paintings further draws attention to Beau's portrait as linked somehow to Manet's painting in her conception. And it leads us to question, what could she have possibly meant by comparing her cousin to a famous painting that seemingly depicted a fallen woman? Sarah is obviously not nude, and she's wearing a white dress, indicating or implying purity. Beau may also have been referencing Whistler's White Girl, the Whistler's controversial painting from 1862. The wilted lily, the disheveled appearance of the girl, led people to think that this was a painting of a young woman after her wedding night. Whistler insisted that his audience should not try to read any kind of story into his painting. He said, quote, my painting simply represents a girl dressed in white standing in front of a white curtain. Perhaps... Beau was suggesting in this portrait that it is ridiculous to try to read additional meaning into paintings. As a successful portrait painter, she knew very well that people read hidden meaning into works of art all the time. That's what art historians are there for. Um, But perhaps she was deliberately attempting to confound viewers by combining symbols of chastity with symbols of enticement and dissolution. Perhaps she was also saying that women shouldn't be held to such impossible standards or judged in black and white extremes. Beau gave the original painting, as I said, to the Musée de Luxembourg. She wanted it to be in the same museum that owned Manet's Olympia. Both paintings are now in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. She was then later persuaded to sell the second version that she made for herself, to the Corcoran Gallery of Art when she exhibited it there in 1923 as part of one of the Corcoran's uh, annual exhibitions of contemporary paintings. And with the Gallery's acquisition of the Corcoran Collection in 2014, Cecilia Bowe, one of the greatest portrait painters of the 19th century, is now finally represented in the National Gallery with one of her best and most enigmatic portraits. This one is right up there in the ranking of Beau's portraits. This is The Man with the Cat, a portrait of Henry Sturgis Drinker, who was Beau's brother-in-law. It also happens to include a cat, and it's currently on view at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. This is the third famous black cat in the collection. This is Theophile Steinland's poster for the Black Cat Cabaret, an 1896 color lithograph. This black cat quickly became an icon for the escapism that people sought in Montmartre through drinking, dancing, music, and other cabaret entertainments. This is not on view, but the original lithograph is not on view, but you can buy posters of it, you can buy earrings, espresso cups, a pillow cover, all printed with Steinlin's black cat in the shop. And there's a special section in the gallery's West Building shop devoted to cats. Speaking of shopping, this has nothing to do with the gallery's collection. I couldn't resist including this photo that a friend sent me last week. This is the Cartier store on Fifth Avenue, decked out for the holidays, including three illuminated gold cats. One is sitting above the door. One is climbing up the facade, and one is resting on the roof. A little harder to see there on the right. And I assume these are Panthers because there is a new... Panther collection at Cartier. And if your taste in jewelry runs a bit more upscale than Steinlin earrings, I encourage you to go to Cartier.com. It's quite fun. Not everything is as steep as this $131,000 brooch. Returning to reality... Uh, And the gallery's collection. The print on the left has another seasonal connection. This is Steinland's Winter Cat, Cat on a Cushion, another color lithograph. And on the right, M.C. Escher's White Cat, a woodcut from 1919. And I'm saving one of the best for last. This is Anna Hyatt Huntington's Yawning Tiger from about 1917. This is the one that was acquired with the Corcoran Collection in 2014. The one on view in Gallery 1, not far from the lecture hall, is on loan from a private collection. And it has no base, which makes it, I think, even more wonderfully expressive of the unrestrained release that comes with a good yawn and a full body stretch, which we probably all need about now. Huntington was one of the most prolific animal sculptors of the early 20th century. She's perhaps most famous for her sculpture of Joan of Arc on Riverside Drive in New York and another version on the West Coast in front of the Palace of the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. This tiger was cast in two sizes. Both the Corcoran version and the one on view are the larger and rarer 28-inch long tigers. 359 casts of the smaller 13th-inch version uh, were made between 1917 and 1948. So there are a lot of those tigers around. So by way of summarizing all of these cats, the National Gallery's West Building collection contains... Many examples of both Christian and mythological subjects in which lions in particular often repress their apex predator ways to suggest peaceful relations with other animals, including humans. Genre scenes include cats as symbols of domesticity. There are numerous portraits from the 19th and early 20th century in which artists incorporate domestic cats as gendered symbols or possibly as a deliberately confounding element, as in Sita and Sarita and sometimes even as straightforward companions, as in the case of Lulu. Sometimes a cat is just a cat. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.